here again. It's September 2020 and this is the start of Series 3. Series 3, Episode 1. And I'm calling this the Rattenbury Stoner Murder in Bournemouth. Bournemouth and Boscombe have wonderful seven mile long sandy beaches and gardens are threaded throughout the town. Bournemouth still retains some of its elegance but it has been slowly strangled by urban sprawl developing around it during the 20th century. I am writing this podcast in late July 2020, a strange time of lockdown release and Bournemouth Beach is overwhelmed. A comment in the local paper says, Bournemouth is a different place these days with fights, rough sleepers and the smell of cannabis everywhere. Well, it wasn't like this back in 1935 when it was a fashionable Art Deco resort and uh, the time of this podcast. Manor Road links Bournemouth and Boscombe running parallel to the cliff top with its pine trees and gorse bushes. It's a pleasant place to live. Today it seems like a different place compared to Boscombe Town Centre which has become quite deprived area as indicative of seaside towns in the south over the past 50 years. Drink and drugs in the hedonistic workshire moving to the area has taken its toll. As already said, Bournemouth and Boscombe were not the fashionable resort it was known to be in the 1930s. One of the sensations of the year in 1935 was a trial at the Old Bailey, where the husband of a woman of 39 was murdered by her lover, who was a servant and aged just 18 years of age. At the start of 1935, Francis Mawson Rattenbury, a celebrated British architect who had designed public buildings in British Columbia in Canada, was 67 years of age. He lived with his second wife, Alma, at Five Manor Road, a house called Villa Madeira, which was rented from a Mrs. Price. Francis and Alma had been married for seven years. Alma Victoria Rattenbury was Francis's second wife. She was 38 years of age. They had a child called John who had been born in 1929. John went away to school and boarded during weekdays. He came home at weekends. Elma also had a boy called Christopher from an earlier marriage. He was born in 1922. He would spend the holidays with his mother at the house. This was Elma's third marriage. Francis had a grown-up son from his first marriage and a daughter as well I believe. A Miss Irene Biggs was a living companion help for Elmer. Well, as I said, Mrs. Rattenbury was born Elmer Victoria Clark, Victoria, British Columbia. Her father was a printer and he lived in ordinary circumstances, although her mother had been a professional singer and the mother had great ambitions for her only child, Elmer, who was a talented musician, a good pianist, and she was labelled as Canada's musical prodigy when aged 18. There are films of her on YouTube, a writer of music under the name of Lausanne. Lausanne, or Elma, was an elegant and attractive woman, a brunette with grey eyes and a good figure. Elma's first marriage at the age of 19 was to a young Ulsterman called Caledon Dolly, who had joined the Canadian forces at the outbreak of World War I. Elmer followed him to the UK, 
Callard was killed in action, fighting with the Royal Welsh Fusiliers in August 1916 at the Battle of the Somme. It was later said that she had lost the love of her life when Dolly was killed. Alma, in her grief, joined a Scottish nursing unit and became a transport driver working near the front line. Her bravery was recognised and she was awarded the French medal across the Gueux, the cross of war, with a star and a palm. It was later said that Alma became a cynical woman of the world, taking her pleasures where she could find them after her experiences of war and losing her first husband and serving on the front line. In 1921, Alma married again to a man already married, a captain, a captain Compton Packerman. They moved to America and she had her son Christopher the following year. The marriage was unhappy and she returned to the home of her aunt in Canada and started performing again as a concert pianist. It was in Victoria after a performance that she met Francis Rattenbury, who fell in love with Alma. She met him on the 29th of December 1923. He was a friend of her mother's sister uh, when he was introduced to Alma. Reading between the lines, it seems that Alma was attracted to Francis for the comfortable lifestyle that he could provide for her. Francis was 60 years of age and married. Alma was 31. At that time, Francis was unhappily married. He and his wife, uh, first wife Florence, grew to dislike each other with Francis living in his own part of the house and only communicating with Florence through their daughter. Drinking gin excessively, he grew gloomy and reclusive. Francis had been a ruthless and aggressive businessman in dealing with others and he received little sympathy when the failed private business venture had almost bankrupted him. Once their affair became public knowledge, it caused a scandal. Rattenbury, married with two children, was a pillar of local society. An acrimonious divorce followed. Francis behaved badly towards his wife Florence in many ways. It was a scandal that caused Alma and him to move to the UK and settle in Bournemouth. Francis's children never accepted Alma as a stepmother and there was a family divide with Francis estranged from his children. Francis's children from his first marriage said later they regarded Alma as a vulgar woman who seduced money from their father and drank continually, but kept their father's favour by constantly flattering him. That was something Alma later admitted. She said, I don't think I ever spoke one word of truth to rats. And that was her pet name for Francis Rattenbury. She wrote after her death, he knew as much about me as I knew about Timbuktu. All he saw was a smile, and he heard, yes darling, no darling, a mask that agreed with his every mood. In Bournemouth, history started to repeat itself. The marriage started to develop problems due to the age differences and Francis Rattenbury's worries about money and domestic issues. However, Francis and Alma were fond of each other. Francis was not a particularly social person. He only seemed to have two people that he chose to socialise with in Bournemouth. His doctor, their own doctor, Dr O'Donnell, and a Mr Jenks, a retired barrister who lived at the nearby town of Bridport. Francis had developed a liking for whisky, consuming almost a bottle a night. Alma was gregarious and liked spending time in the company of others. 
She was described as having a lavish, generous, easy friendliness, which one associates with music hall artists. She found it difficult to live without affection. She had made friends with her living companion, Irene Riggs, because it was her nature to be friendly and affectionate with people around her. Although Elmer was said to have had an impatient temper at times, Mrs. Irene Riggs, her companion, looked forward to the treats that she shared with her employer, such as trips to the theatre, or to London, or to Oxford. The main interest in Elmer's life was her children. She was a loving mother, and there was nothing that she would not do for her two sons. After the birth of John, it seems that sexual relations between Francis and Elmer fizzled out. That spark had gone. Her frequent mood changes, sometimes very excited about and running about, and other times in a stupor, suggest that she may have been using cocaine and even heroin, both then prescribed by GPs as painkillers and sedatives. There were allegations that during October 1932, Elmer had tried to force herself on Frank Hobbs, the 34-year-old she had recently hired as a cook. I chose you because you have sex appeal, she is alleged to have said to him one evening, and when he rejected her advances, she persuaded rats to dismiss him. It was said that Elmer was fond of her husband in a friendly manner, but she did not desire him. Frances was devoted to Elmer and was interested in her musical career, wanting her to succeed as she was trying to develop as a songwriter, although it was said that her style was trite. Francis was supportive of his wife and was never known to speak ill of her. He realised that she lost her true love during World War I and felt that she had a rather unhappy life when everything was taken into consideration. Mrs Rattenbury was said to be kind to her husband, although it was said that she was kind to everybody. She had a quick temper but was quick to make up. The house was said not to be happy, a happy house, but there again it was not unhappy. There was a problem. Elmer was a highly sexed woman who had starved had been starved of sex for six years by her near alcoholic husband, and she craved attention. It was said that Elmer Rattenbury had suffered tuberculosis, TB. She was also accused of being on the verge of nymphomania. Medical opinion at that time seemed to have made a connection between TB and nymphomania. There doesn't seem to be any medical explanation of how this was decided, apart from saying that it was not a blameworthy, but a disease. Elmer was said to be on the verge of lymphothemia, uh, but it was also said that she had not had sex for six years. This does not seem to make any sense to me, but it was what was reported at the time, which seems to indicate that public opinion was not favourable towards her. Another problem in their marriage was that Francis Rattenbury's attitude towards money. He was said to be generous over large amounts, but penny-pinching in small matters. He was said to allow his wife £1,000 a year, which was well above the average wage in England at the time. But what the media did not make clear was that she had to pay all the household expenses from that figure. Mr and Mrs Rattenbury were both heavy drinkers, Mrs Rattenbury was perhaps not the best person to be in charge of the household budget as she was said to have, have very little money sense and was said to be a lavish spender. However, 
Emma was quite inventive of finding ways of getting her husband to give her more money, and she learnt that it was often better to ask for large sums rather than smaller amounts by spinning untrue stories. The 1930s were a time of depression and slump with high unemployment in the UK, and Francis Rattenbury had lost money in his investments and was suffering depression over financial matters. He had threatened to commit suicide, and at one time in July 1934, he talked about it at such length that Alma lost her temper, and she told him it was a pity he just talked about it rather than actually doing it. This resulted in a fight and Alma having a black eye. Dr O'Donnell was called to the house, finding Alma in a distressed state and Francis having left the house, making her think that he was going to kill himself. On the 26th of December 1934, an advertisement was placed in the Bournemouth Daily Echo by Alma Rattenbury for a daily winning lad, 14 to 18 years of age, for housework. Scout train preferred. This was to replace a maid who had recently left. George Percy Stoner was employed as a chauffeur, handyman, at a wage of a pound a week. Stoner was 18 years of age, 5 foot 6 inches tall, with fair hair and blue eyes. He was considered a quiet, shy boy without many friends. He had been backward when he was younger and had not walked until he was over three years of age. It was said he had only had about three or four years of schooling. At first, Stoner lived at his parents' house, but in November 1934, he took up residence at the house. But by this time, he had already became Elmer Rattenbury's lover. They claimed to have had sex for the first time on his 18th birthday. George's quiet appearance concealed stormy adolescent yearnings, and his personality could be quite dramatic. He never had a girlfriend before, and it was said that he found it difficult to tell the difference between what was real and what was make-believe. Physically, he was very passionate, and Elmer Rattenbury fell in love, or lust, with him. Elmer was described as a woman who had dealt in labels and accepted the expression falling in love without too much thought. She wrote simple lyrics to her musical compositions and never really questioned what falling in love actually meant. She was in love with Stoner, who apart from his youth and his virality, were not, was not particularly interesting or an attractive person, and he had a jealous nature. There was some suspicion that Elmer took drugs as, such as cocaine, or snow as it was referred to, as sometimes she acted in a bizarre manner, consistent with such drug use. It's possible that she introduced Stoner to drugs, although none of this was ever actually proved. So, we have a situation in which Elmer Rattenbury, who was a person not really in control of her emotions and had a natural excitability, and who in the past had found it easy to have love affairs with unsuitable partners, and was someone who had been known to drink to excess at the times, having a passionate affair with an immature boy who was at an age when he could have been her son and who was her employee. When Elmer started the affair, she told her doctor, there is something I want to tell you about and I'm afraid that you will be shocked and you will ne never want to speak to me again. Dr O'Donnell had replied that there were very few things that could shock him. When Elmer had told him about the affair she was having with Stoner, O'Donnell warned her that she was being very unwise, but by then Elmer was un unable to give up Stoner, arguing that she was in love with him. 
There was later some dispute whether Francis Rattenbury, who emerges as something of a pathetic figure, or a mari complacent, a man who knew that his wife was committing adultery and had no objection to it, is said that as the house was so small, he must have been aware of who was where and he must have heard the quarrels between Alma and Stoner. However, it's also claimed that as he was 67 years of age and had not had sex for some years, he no longer viewed his wife as being attractive to others and each night he would seek solace in a bottle of whiskey. Those who knew Rattenbury thought that Francis was unaware of his wife's affair. Irene Riggs described Francis as a kind man who enjoyed himself in his own way. The affair had started about a month after Stoner had started work at the house. Elmer is said to have worshipped Stoner. Before they had the affair, she was the dominant character, but once the affair had started, the power seems to shift. Stoner was dazzled by the new mode of living that he was experiencing. He was having his first love affair with a mature woman who showered him with gifts. Irene Riggs, the companion to Elmer, was a quiet, self-effacing and efficient person who was not happy with Stoner's arrival at the household. Elmer had told her about the affair with Stoner and Elmer now went out with Stoner rather than Irene because Stoner was jealous of any third person going out with them. The little expeditions that had been the highlight of Irene's life, but now she stayed behind as Stoner would accompany Elmer. Elmer lied to her husband in order to acquire funds to visit the Royal Palace Hotel in Kensington, London, where they stayed in rooms facing numbered 630 and 632. Stoner pretended that he was her brother. Elmer told Francis that she needed money for an operation and he gave her £250, which would have been the equivalent of about £20,000 in today's value. Stoner was being accepted as a social equal and was called Sir by the hotel staff. Stoner started to have delusions of grandeur. Elmer purchased a large number of articles for Stoner, pyjamas, underclothing, shirts, suits, and a couple of pairs of handmade shoes and other items. Stoner purchased for himself a diamond ring for £15 and Elmer gave him a gold watch. At a later court case, the judge referred to this trip as the Orgy of London. I found it interesting that a couple spending three days in a luxury hotel and the cost was less than £4. There were luxuries at one time unimaginable to a labourer's son. It was thought that this trip to London unsettled Stoner. When Elmer and Stoner arrived back to Manor Road late on Friday night, the 22nd of March 1935, Francis was well into his whisky and didn't ask any questions about how the trip went or how the operation had gone. That weekend, Francis was in a depression. A project that he had been working on had gone wrong and Elmer was finding it difficult to cheer him up. Elmer spent time with Francis to try and lift his spirits. In the morning, they had gone to the tree-top dog breeder who was looking after their dog's new litter of puppies that they were going to sell. Formerly shy, Stoner became increasingly aggressive and possessive of Elmer, expressing jealousy whenever she and El Francis spent time together. Elmer could not lift the mood of Francis, so she suggested that they ring up their friend Mr Jenks in Bridport and visit him on Monday the 25th of March. Mr Jenks said he would be pleased to have them over 
and asked them to stay with her, and so it was arranged. They had telephoned from Francis's bedroom on the ground floor, which opened onto the drawing room. Stone had overheard the conversation. When Elmer came into the drawing room, she found Stoner in an excitable and angry state. Stoner had an air pistol, which he claimed was a revolver, and he told Elmer that he would kill her if she went to Bridport for the night with her husband. Elmer was concerned in case Frances overheard the conversation. She ushered Stoner into the dining room. Stoner accused Elmer of having sex with her husband, and said he refused to drive into Bridport, as they would have to share a bedroom if they stowed over at Mr Jenks. Elmer told Stoner not to be an ass and assured him that they would stay in separate rooms. It seemed to pacify Stoner, who seemed to be brooding over the matter, and he left the house at about 8pm to visit his grandparents and Mr and Mrs Stevens, who lived about four miles away at Redhill Drive, Ensbury Park, just around the corner from his parents. His grandparents said that when he appeared, he was normal in his behaviour, and during the visit, when he asked uh, to borrow a mallet, Stoner used, them, work, used to work with his grandfather, whose workshop was behind the house, and that's where he collected the mallet from. When Stoner returned to Manor Road, he appeared to be normal. Elmer had been playing cards with her husband, then kissed him goodnight, and went upstairs to pack for the Bridport trip the next day. Frances was in the habit of letting her little dog Dinah out in the garden through the French windows, and letting him in a little later. Irene was out that evening and came in about 10.15pm and she went straight to her room. Elmer came into Irene's room and told her about her trip to Bridport. When Elmer returned to her own room, Stoner came in and slipped into the bed, but he seemed agitated and upset. When she asked him what was the problem, she said that she wouldn't be going to Bridport and that he had heard rats, the nickname that they used for Francis. He said that he'd hit him on the head with a mallet that he acquired at his grandparents' house and which he'd hidden in the garden. Elmer thought he'd only tried to hurt Francis so she would not go to Bridport the next day. Elmer, who had a groan, went down to go and check on her husband and found him in the easy chair, unconscious with blood flowing from a head wound. Then she trod on his false teeth that had flown out of his mouth when he was struck and this was said to have made her feel hysterical. Elmer shouted out for Irene and Stoner to come down and the three of them lifted Francis onto his bed and Dr O'Donnell was called. Elmer said that she started drinking her husband's whiskey and she doesn't really remember much else about that evening. By the time he arrived at the house, Elmer must have poured her some, some large drinks as she was very drunk. Irene said that she came down the stairs, she saw a large pool of blood on the floor and one of Francis's eyes was swollen and discoloured. Elmer was drinking whiskey and kept repeating, Oh my poor rats, can't somebody do something? She asked Irene to wipe the blood off the floor and chair, as little John must not see the blood. During the chaos, Stoner was asleep outside in the car. O'Donnell called for surgeon who quickly arrived at the house but found it difficult to examine Francis Rattenbury as Elmer was very drunk and getting in the way. An ambulance took Francis to Strathallan Nursing Home. When examined, he had three serious wounds on his head that could not have been self-inflicted and the police were called. 
Dr. O'Donnell returned to the manor road at about 4am and found the police at the house and Alma Rattenbury running around the house in a drunken state. The radio gramophone was playing loud, a song called Dark-Haired Mary. All the lights were on and Alma had been trying to kiss a police officer. The doctor gave her half a grain of morphia and put her to bed. Before this, as she was getting progressively drunker. Elmer, Dr O'Donnell told the police, was to, the police were to ignore her comments as she was in no fit state to make a statement as she was drugged and drunk and did not know what she was saying. Elmer kept making various statements about that she'd killed her husband, although when the police first arrived she had speculated that it could have been a burglar or perhaps Francis's son, who was living in Canada, the next morning she was taken to Bournemouth Police Station and charged with grievous bodily harm with intent to murder. The police probably took into consideration that Elmer stood to benefit financially from her husband's death, his will granting her a widow's pension that would have left her a very wealthy widow. When questioned by the police, Elmer claimed that she had been playing cards with her husband and he dared to her to kill him as he wanted to die. She said that she picked up the mallet and her husband allegedly said, you don't have the guts to do it. After she hit him, she said that she hid the mallet outside in the garden. She said that if she had a gun, she would have shot him. Elmer was held at Holloway Prison, where three days later she still seemed to be in shock and kept repeating the same phrase. Stoner and Irene Riggs were left in the house at Manor Road, but Irene had no intention of staying as she knew that either Stoner or a burglar had inflicted the injuries on Francis and that Elmer was innocent and she, as she would have been incapable of hurting anyone. However, Irene's mother and brother moved into the house and stayed with her. Dr. O'Donnell had been asked by Francis's relatives to keep an eye on the house and he called by whenever he, came, whenever he could. But whenever he came to speak with Irene at the house, Stoner was always there in the background then he started to act in a bizarre manner. For example, he was getting drunk and running up and down the road shouting, Mrs. Rattenbury is in jail and I've put her there. He was brought back to the house drunk. Irene telephoned the police and the detectives arrived, but as he was so drunk, they just put him to bed. This was considered unusual behaviour, as Stoner never usually drank anything. Alcoholic. Elmer was writing letters to Stoner, asking how her husband was. One letter read, It was so good to see you, and also your mother and father, during a visit. I wrote you dozens of letters in my mind last night. Then she gave him a list of things that she needed in prison, which included nail polish, perfume, clothing, and footwear, which Irene would provide, would prepare for her. She said that in her mind, she, it seems frozen, and she dared not think about the children and she pretended that she didn't have any children. She said that all the stories about the case are cut out of the newspaper that she is given to read. When on Thursday the 28th of March Stoner visited Alma in Holloway, Dr O'Donnell came to speak to Irene, who was very loyal to Alma, and never gave away anything, saying that Mrs Rattenbury was the best employer that she had ever had, or ever likely was to have, and she would not tell her secrets. Dr O'Donnell said that a secret was nothing when a life was at stake and if she did not tell the police what she knew then it was possible that she could be implicated 
for withholding ev evidence. Irene then told the doctor that Stoner had confessed to her that he'd killed Francis, but there was no fingerprints on the mallet as he wore gloves. The police were called and Irene told them everything that she knew. Irene Riggs made a statement to the police saying that she had lived with the Rattenbury's for about four years, employed as a companion help. Riggs slept in a little room above the kitchen. Stoner slept in the front bedroom over the dining room. Mrs. Mr. Rattenbury slept downstairs in the room next to the drawing room. And when the little boy John came home at the weekends, he slept in Mrs. Rattenbury's bedroom. Mr. Rattenbury owned a car kept in the garage at the side of the house. On Sunday, Irene had spent the day with her parents and when she returned about 10pm, she opened the door with the key that was always hidden outside. Irene Riggs then told the police about the relationship between Alma and Stoner and how that during an argument between them, she had once had to separate them. She said how Stoner carried around a knife and uh, he had a, an air pistol. Elma had admitted to Irene that Stoner was her lover on the 12th of February and Stoner had tried to strangle her and that Elma had thought that he was on drugs and he had asked her to try to buy drugs when they went to London together. When asked about the atmosphere at the house, Irene said that it was a little strange. Elma would lounge around in silk pyjamas during the day and play records on the gramophone late into the night. But it was not her place to approve or disapprove. When Stoner arrived from London, he was arrested and on the same evening, Thursday the 28th of March 1935, Francis Rattenbury was, had died of his wounds. Elma wrote to Stoner after he was detained in Pentonville Prison, desperate to communicate with him, but he seems to have ignored her letters. When Stoner was arrested, he said to the police officer that Elma had nothing to do with the murder. He admitted to striking Francis when he thought he was asleep in the chair. He'd been watching through the French windows and saw her kiss her husband, or Elma kiss her husband. Good night and leave the room. Stoner said that he then crept in through the French windows to attack him. Stoner then said, Well, I don't suppose there's much use me telling you because you won't let her out of prison. The post-mortem described Francis Rattenbury as just under six feet, strong for his age, all his organs were healthy, and he was described as a well-preserved male past middle age. The trial opened on the Old Bailey on the 27th of May 1935, just two months after the murder. The case was heard at London as it had attracted so much attention and comment. Most people in the country assumed that Alma Rattenbury was guilty of murder. There was a perception that she was a coarse, drunken and callous woman. It was thought that due to her greater age she had dominated her young lover. But there was a recent memory of a recent case. Please check out my series 2 episode 4 for the case of Thompson and Bywaters. This was a trial whereby an older woman was hung as a result of the actions brought about by her younger lover. There was a slow realisation after the case that it was not a just verdict and Edith Thompson was wrongly hung. And now we had the possibility of repeating itself. The memory of the Thompson Bywater trial was said to haunt the courtroom like a ghost where a woman was killed because she had offended the normal sensibilities of the day. 
Elmer Ratterbury came across well in the witness box. She answered simply and directly without putting any spin on anything. Her voice was low and rich, and she gave the impression of truthfulness. She had a great deal of self-control, apart from a nervous tick in the side of her face which twitched, betraying the tension she felt inside. Elmer said that her husband knew nothing of her affair with Stoner, and he had told her, or her husband had told her, to live her own life a few years back. She was asked about the quarrels that she had with Stoner in the house, while her husband was in the house, but she denied there were many quarrels. Elmer claimed that she was not totally reliant on her husband's money. She made money herself by selling songs and music that she made under her name Lausanne. But she had no proof, saying that she cashed the cheques and the money was swallowed up in the whole household budget. Elmer claimed that she had tried to finish the affair with Stoner due to the age difference, but Stoner would not accept it and caused big quarrels between them. And Stoner had threatened her life, but she didn't take it seriously. Elmer said that she had to tell stories to her husband to get money from him, as he was she was regularly overdrawn at the bank. The day of the murder had started as a peaceful day. They'd gone for a drive in the morning. They took tea and sandwiches and cake on the balcony of her bedroom, served by Stoner. It was just an ordinary Sunday afternoon. There was some shock in the public gallery when Elmer described how she had sex with Stoner in her bedroom while her son slept in the same room. It was also revealed that Elmer had been visited by her 14-year-old son Christopher while on remand, who persuaded her to tell the truth about the murder. Stoner sat in the corner of the dock, his eyes downcast, his face expressionless. Stoner did not give evidence, as was his right since the 1898 law change. His barrister admitted that it was Stoner's hand that killed Francis, Rattenbury, and proceeded to give a sob story of how he was a wartime baby, the First World War that was, and an only child and he was somewhat backward. Stoner was not well educated and became infatuated by Mrs Rattenbury. Stoner also claimed that he became a cocaine addict and took a large dose in the afternoon of the murder which changed totally his nature and as a consequence was not in the right mind when he threatened Elmer with a pistol. Although it remains very doubtful if he actually had access to or actually took any cocaine. In fact, a large part of the case was taken up in the discussion of how cocaine can affect a person and how much of the information given in court was misleading and false. There was a reference made to the cocaine bug, which was an reference to the feeling of an insect crawling under the skin. It was an expression that had recently become fashionable. Reference was uh, made to the amount of cocaine being consumed as being taken in egg cupfuls. There were discussions about cocaineism, where cocaine addicts had hallucinations and delusions of persecution and often carried weapons around with them to protect themselves. Stoner's sudden threats and violent behaviour were said to be consistent with having taken a dose of cocaine that afternoon. There was a suggestion that Stoner had claimed to be a cocaine addict to make him appear more interesting to Elmer. The, prob the probable truth being that Stoner had never taken cocaine. It's likely that Stoner had taken snuff, thinking it was cocaine. The evidence given by the so-called experts at that time seems very suspect in comparison to today, or what's known today. Dr O'Donnell, when giving his evidence, 
said that he saw Elmer on a regular basis over a hundred times in four years, and that he charged the family about 50 guineas a year, which would be about £2,000 in today's values, that Elmer was a very excitable woman, but he did not think that she had ever taken drugs. The surgeon, Dr Alfred Rook, gave his evidence, saying that when he arrived at Manor Road a few minutes after midnight, he saw Mrs. Rattenbury incompletely dressed. I could, sorry, he saw Mr. Rattenbury incompletely dressed. The surgeon, Alfred Rook, gave his, gave his evidence, saying that he arrived at Manor Road a few minutes after midnight. He saw Mr. Rattenbury incompletely dressed. I could see that he was seriously injured, but it was entirely impossible to make a thorough examination, as his hair was a mass of blood, and he could not make out the nature of the head wound. And secondly, there was a disturbance in the house, and it was impossible to concentrate on the patient. Mrs. Rattenbury would not leave the patient alone, and was trying to remove his clothing, calling for scissors to cut off his shirt, and making incoherent remarks. I came to the conclusion that I had to move the patient to a nursing home. When there, I came to the conclusion that the injuries had been caused by three separate blows with a blunt instrument struck from behind Mr. Rattenbury. The closing speech for Elmer Rattenbury was given by her barrister, Mr. O'Connor. He said that Stoner was an unbalanced, melodramatic boy given to violent outbursts, who had assaulted Elmer in the past and would go about with a toy dagger and a toy revolver. He had been taken away for the week to London, living in luxury, and when brought crashing down to Worth when he returned to his chauffeuring and household duties. He submitted to the orders of his mistress's husband, Stoner being unbalanced, hysterical and melodramatic, turned into a monster. A monster like Frankenstein that Elmer could not control. The closing speech for the prosecution was given by Mr Crone Johnson. He argued that although the two people accused had been guilty of immorality, that the public may deplore deceiving her husband, lying about money matters, that this had nothing to do with the case. Stoner may not have been in control of his actions, if he had taken the quantity of cocaine he claimed to have taken. However, after he took the cocaine, he seems to have been able to drive four miles to his grandparents' house, borrow a mallet, and have a conversation where he seemed to be in character. Then he returned to Manor Road, and he waited two hours before he struck the blows that killed Mr. Rattenbury. The prosecution were asking for the pair to be found guilty of joint agreement to murder. Mr. Justice Humphreys then made a summing up of the trial. The judge considered the mentality of the accused. He thought that Mrs. Rattenbury was an ill-balanced personality, although a woman of the world. The last thing that she would have wanted was to have been married to her chauffeur, who was 20 years younger than herself. The judge apologised for using slang expression, but he thought that it was one that fitted the situation when he said that Mrs. Rattenbury was sitting pretty. She had a kind husband that allowed her to live her own life. She had a young lover who satisfied her emotionally and physically. She had two children to whom she was devoted, and she was comfortably off. Mrs. Rattenbury was essentially maternal. She spoiled and protected Stoner. She adored her children. She comforted her husband. She tried to give Irene Riggs a good life as possible, and she was kind to all that she met, and she seemed incapable of unkindness. Although Mrs. Rattenbury was an immoral woman, she did not desire her husband's death and she did not wish to marry her lover.
The judge continued that the unfortunate stoner was a much simpler, had a much simpler experience of life, where the boundary line between drama and reality was obscure for him. He lived in an unintelligent world of crude emotion, where he would hit out blindly. Prisons are full of those that suffer from infantilism, such as stoner. That goes, what goes on in their heads bears no relation at all to real life. The judge argued that the prisons, uh, that maybe Stoner's ill-educated mind found it impossible to stop after the first blow to Mr. Rattenbury in his disturbed and jealous state. He would do anything rather than let the Bridport trip go ahead, as if Stoner had driven to the Rattenbury's to uh, Bridport, he would have to do so in the capacity of the chauffeur, and he would have to stay there in the same capacity and eat with the other servants. The judge said that as a motive this would have seemed inadequate to most people, but all motives for murder are inadequate, and men have murdered for less. The jury were out for less than half an hour, finding Mrs. Alma Rattenbury not guilty, and Stoner guilty, but adding a recommendation for mercy. Mrs. Rattenbury still unmovable while the verdict was returned for her, but when the verdict for Stoner was given, she gave a little moan and put out her hand. Stoner received his sentence without flinching, and when he spoke for the first time, when asked by the clerk of the court whether he had anything to say, he replied in a low voice, nothing at all. Although Elmer was discharged by the court after being found innocent, she could not face the public judgment of her as a woman. She felt that people thought that she had told Stoner to kill her husband, and that she was a dreadful woman. Alma was taken away by her husband's relatives and put into a flat in London, but the press besieged the flat, and so she was moved to a nursing home in, on the recommendation of the doctor who had been called to attend her. But the media and press followed her to the nursing home and camped outside. Alma Rattamy was by now an ill, ill physically and mentally. She just desired to be left alone. Alma left the nursing home, and what she did during the this time is not known. Elmer must have bought a knife and taken her train to Christchurch near to where she used to live. It seemed that she sat next to the bank of a tributary to the River Avon. While here she wrote on the backs of envelopes and scraps of paper. She was giving reasons for why she should commit suicide, in particular the assumption that the public had of her that she had dominated Stoner, saying that the reverse was in fact true and that Stoner did exactly what he wanted to. She said that she had not, if she had not been made to tell the truth, she would never have given Stoner away, and she would have accepted the blame. She complained about her hounding by the press and the attack on her character. She asked how was she supposed to make a fresh start with her children after her name had been blackened? Who would want their children to play with hers? Elma wrote saying it would be better for her children if she died. With her writing finished, she stabbed herself six times in the chest, the blade penetrating her heart. She fell into the nearby river dead. It was later said that when an ancient Roman killed himself, he inserted the tip of his sword between two ribs and fell upon it, as he knew that it was almost impossible to drive a knife steadily into his chest to kill himself whereas Mrs. Rattenbury drove it in six times, such was her determination. The inquest on Elmer Rattenbury was held on Friday the 8th of June 1935 at Christchurch. 
Elmer was described as a well-nourished woman aged 35 to 40. All the stab wounds to the chest passed downwards and inwards. Death was said to have been almost instantaneous. She would have been dead before entering the water. Irene Riggs had identified the body and she said that the letters found were in her handwriting. Elmer had been found by a farm cowman who had been walking across the meadow next to Stony Lane. She was sitting on the bank of a stream which passes underneath the railway. She was smoking a cigarette. Then he saw her stand with a knife in her hand. Then she fell forward into the water. He rushed across and found her face up in the water with blood in the water. He ran to the cottage and notified the police. The letters were recovered and the coroner allowed some extracts to be read out. The first was from a letter dated the 4th of June 1935 saying, I want to make it perfectly clear that no one is responsible for my actions. No one's responsible for the actions I may take regarding my life. I have quite made my mind up at Holloway Prison to finish things. Every night and every minute is only prolonging the appalling agony of my mind. The coroner said that the letter went into a lot of neurotic statements which he did not propose to read. There was another letter dated the 3rd of June, written on the back of an envelope addressed to the governor of Pentonville Prison. An extract said, If I only thought I could help Stoner, I would stay on and not end my life. But it has been pointed out to me all too vividly that I cannot help him. That is my death sentence. Another letter read, 8 o'clock. After so much walking, I've just got here. Oh, to see the swans and the spring flowers, and just to smell them. And how singular that I have chosen the very spot that Stoner said that he need jumped out of the train once, right near where I'm sitting. It was not my intention on coming here. I tossed a coin like Stoner always did, and it came down on Christchurch. It's beautiful here. What a lovely world we're in. It must seem easier to be hanged than to have to do the job oneself, especially in these circumstances or to be watched all the while. Pray God nothing stops me tonight. I'm within five minutes of Christchurch now. God bless my children and look after them. The last extract was written on the night of Tuesday the 4th of June. It read, I tried this morning to throw myself under the train at Oxford Circus, but there were too many people about. Then a bus, still too many people about. One must be bold to do things like this. It's beautiful here and I'm all alone. Thank God for peace at last. The coroner found that Elmer Rattenbury, not being of sound mind, did kill herself. Elmer Rattenbury's funeral, as reported in the Bournemouth graphic, was attended by 3,000 people, the great majority of whom were women. As to whether these women attended out of voyeuristic curiosity or out of solidarity for the tragic figure, it's not clear but the attendance was markedly different to the funeral of her husband, which was attended just by a few people, including his nephew and household staff. At Elmer's funeral and burial at Bournemouth's Wimborne Road Cemetery, signatures were already being collected for mercy for the led-astray Stoner after Elmer's death. After Elmer's death, Stoner then tried to change his story and claimed that he'd lied in an attempt to protect her and that it was in fact she that had killed her husband. The words of the song that she wrote while awaiting trial were subsequently published as Mrs. Rattenbury's Prison Song. 
that she really did love Stoner, who she thought was soon to be hung. She had died of shame. Stoner, when informed of her death, broke down and cried. A petition containing an amazing 320,000 signatures, including those of the local mayor and MP, were later handed to the Home Secretary, who commuted Stoner's sentence to penal solitude for life, servitude for life. A model prisoner, Stoner was released seven years later in 1942. He then joined the army for the remainder of World War II, with the Royal Army Corps in France. He returned to live the rest of his life in the house in Bournemouth that he had left at the age of 18. Rather an unimaginative thing to do, to live in a town where he must have been known for his behaviour. He married Christine in 1944 and had a daughter, Yvonne, in 1948. Stoner and his wife led a quiet life in the Bournemouth area, although he briefly attracted the attention of the media again when he was given two years probation for indecently assaulting a 12-year-old boy in a washroom in 1990. It's possible that Stoner was already suffering from Alzheimer's disease at the time of the offence. Stoner died in a Christchurch hospital in 2000, aged 83, after suffering a brain tumour. Not much more from half a mile away from Alma, where Alma had killed herself, and exactly the 65th anniversary of Francis's murder. In November, the 29th, in November 29th, 2007, at the age of 78, Alma's son John gave an interview in which he recalled the events of 1935. His parents' death. The solicitor cousin in London, administering the family's estate on his behalf, acted as John's guardian. In the school holidays, he boarded in Bournemouth before going to King's College Choir School, Cambridge. He'll be farmed out to various relatives. I usually spent Christmas with a great aunt and uncle in other holidays elsewhere. During World War II, invasion looked imminent, so my guardians decided I should be evacuated to Vancouver in Canada, and so he sailed from Liverpool. John followed the same career as his father. When in Canada, he came to work under the famous American architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, who was to become his mentor and a father figure after he befriended John. We developed a very strong mutual affection, John says. It's funny, Frank had the same Christian name as my father. He was born in the same year and had a wife about 30 years younger. John recalls his early years at Madeira Villa, his parents' home in Manor Road, Bournemouth. It was not a happy house. My father had become a recluse and wasn't a happy man. I later found out that he had started to drink a lot. He had had an illustrious career, but he was semi-retired and frustrated because he hadn't done anything to occupy his mind. My mother was a talented musician, but she had her own problems. I have fond memories of her sitting on her shoulders when she went swimming and going for walks together. But the age gap between my parents, she was 29 years younger, was a problem. He was fast becoming an old man. She was still a vibrant, beautiful woman and wasn't getting into any drink. I believe that she may have been getting into drugs too. Very few people mention my parents' good qualities, my father's architecture and my mother's musicianship, said John. That's how I prefer to remember them. And whatever anybody says, I know that my mother was a good woman. Alma came under so much criticism that she was much older than Stoner, 
the class-conscious population of the UK felt able to judge her and feel that they would not have acted the same way as she did. What is not mentioned is that Alma's husband was more senior to her than she was to Stoner. Francis Rattenbury was 68, Alma was 41, Stoner was 18. It did not seem to shock people that Francis was much older than his wife, but they seemed outraged that her lover was much younger than she was. Three generations in one manage de trois. The fact was not lost on the playwright Tennis Rattigan, who based his last play on the Rattenbury case, Corsaleb, in which Alma has given a much more sympathetic portrayal than she experienced in real life. The case, uh, the, the stage play, has been adapted for film and stage. Well, thank you for listening, and thank you, Damselfly, for providing the background music. For the new series, I shall get round to downloading their latest music, which is now under a different name. I have something different for the next few podcasts. I'm working on a linked series of podcasts about the coming together in the late 1960s of East End Underworld to the Bohemian world of Chelsea and Soho during the swinging 60s in London. The manifestation of this coming together being a, a film released in 1970 called Performance. I was listening to a series of podcasts called You Must Remember This about Charles Manson's Hollywood when the 1960s dream turned into the bad trip in August 1969. The film performance was sent to mark the end of an era in the UK. There are many strange and interesting stories associated with uh, the making of the film that I thought that I would attempt to tell the story. I'm not sure how many episodes there's going to be, I think five maybe six, but I'll put one out each week, so I hope that you can check these out. So until then, I will thank you again for listening, and say, until next time, goodbye. Goodbye, and thank you.